to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So my family has a 50-50 relationship with glasses. My father, represented here in the dark blue, Um, has terrible vision, like the thickest glasses you've ever seen. While my mom, here in the light blue, um, has amazing vision and has never had to wear glasses. So of us four kids, my sister Becky and I ended up over here on my dad's side. And we have worn glasses for most of our lives. Well, our baby sister and brother ended up with my mom's excellent vision. Now, my mom tells a story about how she probably should have cottoned on to my sister Becky needing glasses a little bit sooner. Becky got glasses in second grade, um, which suddenly made a lot of sense to different things to my mom. Yeah, she was always running into things and tripping and stuff. I just thought she was clumsy, but apparently she couldn't see. Yeah, my sister Becky is not clumsy. She is definitely the most coordinated of all of us siblings, like the only one to do sports and actually be good at it. Now, as I've become a parent, I have carried the story of Becky and her glasses in the back of my brain, resolved to not make the same mistake as my mother. I will notice when my kids need glasses. So I've been suspicious for a long time of my second son, Aiden. If you're familiar at all with Aiden, he is the epitome of clumsy. That child fell more in a single day, nay, a single hour of his life than my first son fell in his entire existence. It was frankly astonishing how little Aiden could stay upright and keep from hitting his head and running into things. Accordingly, I was not at all surprised when he failed his one-year vision screening. And I thought, I knew it. He needs glasses. That explains all the falling and running into every stationary object in and out of his path. But lo and behold, we took him to the pediatric ophthalmologist and his eyes were fine. No glasses needed at all. Unlike my sister Becky, he is in fact just clumsy. Well, when our third child, our daughter Catherine, also failed her one-year vision screening, I was not concerned. Not only had the clumsy one failed his vision screening and then been totally fine, but Catherine was the furthest thing from clumsy. She is so incredibly careful and meticulous. She never falls. She never runs into things. She's perfect. (laughs) But guess what? That girl cannot see. When the ophthalmologist did their miraculous magical test to determine the quality of her eyesight, they sat back and they said, whoa, she needs glasses, like really needs glasses. And they were right. When her little pink glasses finally came into the nationwide vision store and she tried them on for the first time in their glass paneled lobby, the difference was night and day. She walked with wonder over to the window and she pointed out to the street beyond saying, oh, oh, oh. It was a whole new world that she had never seen before. And then we went to leave the store and head home and I opened the door and she stopped, frozen mid-step on the sidewalk, pointing at the ground. And I looked down like, what is it? 
And it was the crack in the sidewalk that every sidewalk has every couple of feet, but apparently she had never seen them before. She was astonished by these great big lines that had suddenly materialized in her vision and she refused to walk over them. So I carried her to the car. And it was the same when we got home. We have tile on our bottom floor and tile has grout lines. But Catherine didn't know that. Suddenly, this whole new way of seeing was opened up to her and she saw the world that had been familiar and routine and normal in a totally brand new light. Her eyes were suddenly opened and she could see. Well, today we are going to continue our journey with Elisha, the holy man, and he is going to open the eyes of someone so that he can suddenly see the reality of our world. And this is a reality that is often hidden to us or that we simply don't acknowledge or isn't something that we think about very often. Because like Catherine, we often assume that if we don't see any sidewalk cracks, that they don't exist. And that's a very normal assumption. But sometimes that's not the case. Just because maybe we can't see the cracks doesn't mean that they're not real and there and we need to have our eyes opened so we can see. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in and find out what we see. So for context for this story, at this point, the nation of Aram up here in Brown um, is at war with the nation of Israel here in the blue. And Israel is where the prophet Elisha lives. And the king of Aram, he is pretty set on capturing the king of Israel. He plans ambush after ambush, but he keeps getting thwarted. One time when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, after consulting with his officers, he said, at such and such place, I want an ambush set. The holy man sent a message to the king of Israel, watch out when you're passing this place because Aram has set an ambush there. Elisha's pretty awesome, looking out for the safety of his king. So the king of Israel sent word concerning the place of which the holy man had warned him. And this kind of thing happened all the time. So guess how the king of Aram feels about this? The king of Aram was furious over all this. He called his officers together and said, tell me who is leaking information to the king of Israel? Who is the spy in our ranks? But one of his men said, no, my master, dear king, it's not any of us. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel everything you say, even what you whisper in your bedroom. Now, luckily for the officers, they recognize and acknowledge some of Elisha's unique capabilities, and this helps keep them from all being executed as potential moles. Um, but we've seen hints before that sometimes Elisha just knows things that he shouldn't know based on human standards, like knowing that the Shunammite woman was coming to visit him, or knowing what his servant Gehazi was saying to Naaman um, that wasn't quite on the up and up. And apparently, he also knows what a foreign king is scheming in his bedroom. How does he do this? Well, if we go back and remember that previous story of the Shunammite woman, when the Shunammite woman comes to visit Elisha and she's visibly upset after her son dies, Elisha tells his servant Gehazi this, leave her alone. She is deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. Elisha is not magical. He's just a man, a human like you and me. But God is omniscient and omnipresent and God knows. And Elisha just happens to have a deep relationship with God. 
God has chosen to specially reveal things to Elisha. And we'll see in a second some other things that God chooses to reveal to Elisha. All right, so back to that frustrated king of Aram. The king said, go and find out where Elisha is. I'll send someone and capture him. New plan, let's ambush the holy man who has been revealing all the other ambushes. Then I'll ambush the king. Good plan, king of Aram. The report came back, Elisha's in Dothan. Then the king dispatched horses and chariots, an impressive fighting force. They came by night and surrounded the city. Early in the morning, a servant of the holy man got up and went out. Surprise! Horses and chariots surrounding the city. The young man exclaimed, Oh, master, what shall we do? Uh-oh. So when the king of Aram was setting out to ambush Elisha, this is not exactly the turn of events that I was expecting. Elisha told the king of Israel about every other ambush. But he was in the dark on this ambush? The one ambush that was meant for him? Talk about irony. Sounds like things are about to go pretty poorly because there's not much good one man can do against an entire army of horses and chariots. Well, let's see, what does Elisha do? Shockingly, he is cool as a cucumber. Elisha said, don't worry about it. What? Don't worry about it. Can you see? There is a giant raging army of horses and chariots, the supreme fighting force of the ancient world here to capture you. It's like tanks and a SWAT team rolled up outside your house with a helicopter whirring overhead. And you're like, don't worry, it'll be fine. Will it? I don't feel like you're seeing what I'm seeing. But why is Elisha so unfazed? This is what he says. There are more on our side than on their side. What? Like, like the people in Dothan? I don't know if you've taken a look around the town recently, Elisha, um, but these are like butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, not exactly an elite fighting force. And our count of horses and chariots? Um, there's a donkey? Jeremiah's got a cart? Who's on our side? Who are you talking about? Then Elisha prayed, Oh God, open his eyes and let him see. Now what do you guys think that he saw? Well, he saw something that we don't usually acknowledge or like to talk about very much. Or even if we do, we probably feel at least a little bit skeptical of. We're surrounded by a culture that leans pretty heavily into the materialistic and skeptics category. We like science. We like things that are observable and testable. We like natural explanations for things. And that's not bad. Modern medicine is amazing. I am so glad that we don't think the humors or bloodletting are a real thing anymore because it is a wonder that anyone ever got better before we started applying the scientific theory to our world. Our world is ordered and is testable. God is not stupid and his world and the way it works makes sense and we can study it and know it and get closer to understanding God and his creative genius behind it. Wanting to know and be rigorous in our science is a very good thing. But everything has positives and negatives. And some of the negatives of living in a world shaped by this culture and rationalization and scientific theory 
is that we often don't leave room for spiritual realities because spiritual realities are not like physical realities. They're not testable in the same way. They're less predictable. They don't work as neatly. And so sometimes, you know, it's just easier to put that in a box, pretend like it's not there and doesn't exist, than have to wade through that mess um, to acknowledge something that's really pretty far beyond our understanding. But as people of faith, we cannot do that. Our entire belief system is based on the fact that the spiritual is real and intricately and inseparably intertwined with our physical existence. As people of faith, we believe in God who is spiritual. We believe in spiritual gifts. We believe in the power of the church. We believe in the mystery of the Trinity and God incarnate. We believe in miracles and prayer. We believe that we are spiritual beings and bodies, that the choices that we make have real and spiritual consequences. We believe that there is life after death, that heaven is real, that we can talk to and have a relationship with someone who we've never seen before. We cannot be people of faith and not also hold the reality of the spiritual. So this is what the man saw. The eyes of the young man were opened and he saw a wonder, the whole mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. Now this is epic. This is awesome. Chariots of fire materializing out of thin air. Who are these people? Why couldn't they be seen before? Well, you might have little things pinging in your brain because where have we seen chariots of fire before? That's right, way back at the beginning of our series when Elijah was taken up to heaven before passing the prophethood to Elisha, he was swept up in a holy chariot of fire. These are not flesh and blood people. When Elisha says there are more on our side than on theirs, he is not talking about the soldiers in the Israelite army. He is not talking about the people back in Dothan. He is talking about God's army of angels. This is the hidden reality of our world that God suddenly allows the young man to see. The cracks in the sidewalk, the grout in the tile that we think isn't there because we can't see it, but the cracks and the grout are real. The spiritual realm is real. God's heavenly armies, his angels, his spiritual working, his presence and movement in our world, all of it is real. We just need to see. Now I know for me, it has sometimes been hard to lean into the spiritual realities of my faith. Like, I've never doubted God or his reality and goodness or my relationship with him, but I have struggled with things like prayer because it's not necessarily as rational or predictable as I would like it to be. I like talking to God and I like being close to him through conversation, but I've always wondered, like, does prayer really work? Like if I pray for something, what is the relationship between praying for it and it actually happening? Because cause and effect gets really weird with prayer. Will God not move if I don't pray? Isn't he good and faithful regardless of me? It's complicated. 
But despite my doubts and not being able to see how it all works, I feel like these past several years in my life, the realness of the spiritual world has come into sharper relief for me, starting and probably ending with the mystery of prayer. All right, so storytelling time. When I was pregnant with my third child, Catherine, the one who now wears glasses and can see sidewalk cracks, I was having a huge difficulty with anger. My oldest son, Roland, was two going on three, and he, he is wonderful, like really the easiest, most amazing kid. Um, but for a number of small reasons, he was driving up me up the wall and I just could not deal with it. He would intentionally antagonize his baby brother, who was about to turn one, by like hitting him or pinching him because he was bored or Aiden took a Lego. Um, and the Mama Bear Bridge was so real. I saw red like every time, like how dare you hurt my young, innocent baby. And I literally had to step away so that I did not like slap Roland across the face. Now luckily, my husband Ryan was totally nonplussed every time and could very maturely do the, now we don't hit our baby brother. What do we do when we're angry? Mommy's practicing one of the choices right now and walking away, but we'll talk about that later. Now I tried everything that I could think of, deep breathing, rehearsing scripts, praying about it, working on peace and joy and kindness, but I was just angry and I could not find a way out. At our small group that summer, um, the leaders, Pat and Chris Turner, who are wonderful, did an awesome job of asking everyone what they could be praying for us. And then they actually did it. They prayed faithfully for all of us in that group every single week throughout the week. And one week, I asked for prayer for my anger. And guess what? It was gone, like evaporated overnight. Now, I'm not saying that prayer is magical or what you pray for will inherently happen. That's not what prayer is about. But in that moment, as God moved through prayer, God was opening my eyes just a little bit and showing me that the spiritual is real. That even if I couldn't see it or understand it all the way, he was working in the spiritual and physical. But there was more to see. So I've talked thus far a lot about all of the beautiful and amazing and holy aspects of the spiritual world. <clears throat> like the vast armies of angels on the hills and the mystery of prayer. But I want to go ahead and take a turn because unfortunately, the not so good parts are just as real. Now, I think that in just the same way that it is critical that we do see the way that God is moving and that prayer is powerful and that his armies are on the hills, it is also important that we acknowledge the reality of the demonic and the negative spiritual influences on our lives. And I want to talk about this today, not to generate curiosity or thinking too much about the negative spiritual realm, but just to recognize its existence so that we can remove some of the power that comes when we're just not seeing it. Because even if you can't see the crack in the sidewalk, it can still trip you up. Now, in his amazing book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, 
One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what we're gonna try and do is sit in this balance, not disbelief, which our culture tends to err toward, and not interest, which puts power into the hands of whatever you're interested in. Now again, I think as people of faith, one of our strongest arguments for the reality of the demonic is Jesus's interactions with the demonic. I trust Jesus. He is the center from which I interpret and understand everything, and Jesus clearly interacted with demons throughout his ministry on earth. Read the Gospels. His interactions with the demonic can be weird and difficult to understand because like I said before, the spiritual world does not work quite the same way as the physical, but one thing is always clear. Jesus wins. Jesus is the ultimate authority. The demons all tremble at his name and must obey him and have no power against him. God wins. And that is the final answer in all confrontations in the spiritual realm. But even with this assurance that God always wins, we still have to be mindful and we may encounter demonic activity that we need to be prepared for. Ephesians tells us this, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There's a fight that we're doing against things that we can't see but opening our eyes to this reality can help immensely. All right, so another storytelling time. Um, and I want to give a warning up front that this story has some potentially triggering material in it around self-harm. So if that's a trigger for you, I want you to be aware um, so that you can be prepared. All right. So I talked about that time of suddenly seeing prayer move while I was pregnant with my daughter, Catherine. And then a couple months later, I gave birth to her and she was amazing. Deep mommy love for this little puffy red snub nosed little girl of mine. I loved my sweet baby girl. I loved my husband. I loved my darling stinky boys. I loved my amazing family and beautiful church. My life felt so full and happy and I was so thankful and grateful to God but something also wasn't right. Because about five weeks postpartum, I was lying in the bed on our loft, trying to figure out how to kill myself. And this was my first interaction with a demonic. I was severely depressed. Later, I would find out that I had severe postpartum depression that can be triggered from the drastic swing in chemical and hormone balances after giving birth, but at the time, all I knew was that my body and my mind was really, really sad for no reason. And I didn't wanna die. I loved my family and I loved my life and there was no part of me that wanted to leave that. But then in my head, there was this voice saying over and over, you need to kill yourself. You need to kill yourself. Go get a knife, 
don't tell Ryan, go downstairs and get a knife. I didn't do it. But in reflecting and processing that night with my postpartum depression support group, I realized something important, that that voice was not me. It wasn't, I need to kill myself. It was, you need to kill yourself. Something else was trying to influence me and taking advantage of my deeply vulnerable state in the midst of my depression. I started to learn how to recognize this darker influence that was separate from the postpartum depression. There was an intense heaviness associated with it. Like it felt like something was literally sitting on my face or on my chest. There was a feeling of evil. Um, the voice in my head would become more intense and demanding, urging me to do things that the rest of me did not want to do. Now I have a pretty strong sense of self-worth, so it wasn't able to pretend to be me or use I statements. Um, and it was always directed as a separate entity from me. Um, but oftentimes it would wait until nighttime or I was alone to act. Now these are reflections about it that I'm able to articulate now, but at the time it was pretty subconscious um, and I was also struggling with just dealing with the reality of severe postpartum depression as a separate mental, influ as a separate mental illness from any demonic influence. It was a long nine months postpartum with very slow processing of what was happening struggling with the decision of whether or not to pursue medication um, and very carefully and hesitantly beginning to share with some people the reality of what I was going through. And I thought that I was getting better. Things were getting less dark. I was like at least treading water. Um, but then COVID happened and I lost a lot of the supports that I had been relying on. No more so postpartum support group, suddenly not able to see any of my family and friends, stuck in my house for months. Um, everyone else was also going through really understandable crises and high emotions with the shit show that was 2020. And I felt unable to even ask someone to come over and help me if I needed it because I might give them COVID. Um, so by that June, I was ripe for another attack. It was nighttime. Um, and the postpartum depression had been hard that day. Ryan and I had had a small little argument, um, but it was enough to make me feel distant from him. It waited until Ryan had fallen asleep and I was still awake. And then the weight came back onto my face and my chest and it told me to go downstairs. And the pressing urge was huge. You need to kill yourself. You need to kill yourself. And I knew that we had pills in the house. So I started to look up which common pills you can overdose on. And we had the correct things. Um, and there was nothing but time and me and the voice and the intense, horrible heaviness. So I went upstairs to get the pills from our bathroom. And I knew that I was at a crossroads. That if I went into the bathroom, I wasn't coming out alive. But if I woke up Ryan, I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. And it pushed so hard for me to not wake up Ryan, saying, don't wake him up, don't wake him up. But I did. I woke him up and I said, I'm not okay. 
and we battled for what felt like a long time that night. I didn't want to look in the mirror because I didn't want to see the demon looking back at me. Ryan would say my name, the demon would say back, Megan is not here. But Ryan held me tight and prayed for the authority of Jesus over whatever it was we were fighting, and it left. The heaviness suddenly was gone and it was just me and Ryan there in the bathroom. Now the very next morning, I made an appointment to start medication and it worked so well. It was a huge gift. And after that night, I still battled some depression and postpartum things, but the demonic has stayed out of it. Now, I don't share this story with you to scare you or to be sensational, but because the spiritual is real and it has real impacts on our lives. And I wish that I had known more upfront how to recognize and resist this unseen reality because maybe it wouldn't have gotten so close. And having dealt with the potential pressure of the demonic, I don't want any of you to be in that situation and to feel powerless or like you have to say yes or that you are alone because you are not alone. And you are not powerless because God's heavenly armies are on the hills and God always wins. So, um, I want to give you guys a couple of things as you interact with the reality of the unseen world. And again, like I said before, the spiritual world is not as predictable or clear-cut or understandable as our physical world. Some of you may have had interactions with the demonic that look very different than mine um, or different strategies and things that have been helpful to you. So don't take what I say here as the end all be all, um, but simply what I've learned to be helpful from my own experiences and looking at the Bible. All right, so first, this is from 1 Peter. Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around roaring like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right, so to address something, you first have to recognize it. At the beginning of my postpartum depression, I was in deep denial about what was happening to me. And denying my reality put a huge hamstring in my ability to address it appropriately. Call a spade a spade in your life. If you are lonely, say it. If you abuse alcohol to numb and medicate, acknowledge it. If you struggle with negative self-talk, don't call it normal or okay. The devil thrives in untruth and lies, and we eliminate a lot of his power by staying alert and recognizing the truth in our lives, even if they are painful to acknowledge. Now, as um, again, staying in that balance, um, this staying alert is not to assume that there's a demon behind every corner, that the explanation for any trial and tribulation in your life is demonic. In the Gospels, there were people who were blind and mute, who had no demonic activity happening. And then there were people who were blind and mute, who did have demonic activity happening. Something bad or hard is not inherently the presence of the demonic. And I would say like 99% of the time, it's not. I do not believe that my postpartum depression was somehow brought on by demons. I was sick and I needed help for something very physical in my life. 
And I think that God used it to strengthen my faith and relationship with Him, to undo some deep negative messages in my life that I didn't realize that I was carrying. But it was not the devil. What I do think happened was that demons took advantage of that situation. Now in the second half of the verse, um, the writer compares the devil to a roaring lion. And the devil does not play fair. Lions look for the weak ones, the stragglers, the ones on the edge and the alone, and that's who they attack. And I think a lot of what made this particular spiritual attack really effective on me is how vulnerable I was. It is really important to be mindful of when you are more vulnerable and susceptible and to take preemptive steps to put in extra supports for those times in your life. If you know that you are more susceptible when you are tired, rigorously protect your sleep. If you know you're more vulnerable when you have a stressful deadline come up, ruthlessly remove extraneous commitments for those two weeks. If you know that you are more susceptible over the long expanse of the summer, intentionally structure and plan your time for that season. Avoid vulnerable situations as much as possible. And sometimes you find yourself weak, hurting, and vulnerable. And this is my biggest piece of advice for you. Like if you do not take away anything else from my message, take away this, do not fight alone. One of the devil's most effective strategies is to isolate you, either physically or emotionally or both. One of the key themes in my interactions with the demonic was always initially this push to isolate. It would say, get out of bed, go downstairs. It would wait until nighttime when most people are sleeping so there are less immediate supports. It would wait until I had a conflict or some sense of distance from others so that I felt more alone emotionally. It would then begin the series of lies that says, no one cares. You can't reach out to anybody. Everyone hates you. It wouldn't matter anyway. It's not true. Do not fight alone. It will be the hardest decision that you make, but it is probably the most helpful. Get someone else involved. When you are weak and vulnerable, your ability to make normal good decisions can be really limited, and you may only have the energy for one good decision. So use it to reach out and get someone else there. There will be a huge pressure to not lie after lie about how people don't care about you, it wouldn't matter anyway, anything to keep you from reaching out. But if you do one thing, do not fight alone. Reach out, get someone else involved. Pick up your phone and call someone, anyone, it doesn't matter. Wake up your roommate. If you live alone, drive to someone's house. Don't fall for the, oh, I don't want to bother them. It's not that big a deal anyway. They didn't pick up. I don't care. Drive to their house and just show up. I'm always at home. I'm here with just kids hanging out. If you need something, literally just come. Get someone else in the room with you. Do not fight alone. Ecclesiastes tells us a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. 
Do not fight alone. Alrighty, so that was the first piece of advice. Okay, next, put on the armor of God. Um, and looking back at that Ephesians passage, I think that this is one of the most helpful passages on spiritual warfare. Paul tells us, therefore put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All right, so I know this is long and this is a lot, but let's break it down just a little bit. So first, the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. Truth is so powerful against the enemy. When that voice tries to tell you, you suck, you're the worst, you don't deserve anything, that is not the truth. Deeply knowing and internalizing the truth about my identity as a child of God was critical in recognizing the voice of the enemy because it didn't sound like the voice I knew. It made it easier to say, no, that's not true, and then get suspicious about who was talking. And the body armor of God's righteousness is just this added layer of vulner against vulnerability. When we're living in stuff with God and doing life His way, sin or the negative influences of the demonic just don't seem as enticing. And we just don't find ourselves in as vulnerable situations as often. All right, so next, the peace that comes from the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God wins. There is no contest. He is an authority and the demons flee from him. Now this verse from this, um, the Psalms has been really helpful for me when I feel afraid of the power of the demonic because it recenters me in the peace of who actually has the power. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You don't have to be afraid of the unseen dark powers. There are more with us than there are with them. And we can feel safe and secure in the authority and covering of our shepherd who protects us with his very life. And then last, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Our faith is in God and the spirit is what fights on our behalf. Let God fight, not you. I hate to break it to you, but you are not strong enough to defeat demons, um, but you don't have to be. God is. All we have to do is resist, say no, and then run to God. James 4, 7 says, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We surrender ourselves to God, not the devil, and God fights for us. All right, and then lastly, prayer. So this is how that Ephesians passage on spiritual warfare ends. It says, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And that last line is key. Now, I started by sharing um, about how God opened my eyes about prayer when I was still pregnant with Catherine. And 
this glimpse into the unseen world um, and my, my battle both started and ended with prayer, but not my prayer. When I was in my depression, I could not pray. My ability to engage with anything with creativity and interest was so low that I didn't even have the desire to pray. The most I could offer was a God, please help me. God, please save me as I struggled. Um, but I think prayer is what saved my life. The morning after I tried to kill myself, I had a text message from one of Ryan's coworkers who had only interacted with a couple of times during uh, work retreats. And in it she said, hey, I don't know why, but in the middle of the night last night, I was thinking about you and I felt really strongly to pray for you. So I did. I don't know if anything is going on, but I just wanted to let you know that I was praying for you. And then not only did I see the reality of the dark powers in the unseen world, but the chariots of fire. Chariots of fire and horses all over the hills of my life as God blazed to life and power and let me know that even while I was battling in the dark of the middle of the night, I was not fighting alone. Unseen armies were waging war for me and there was more on my side than there was on theirs. Though I couldn't see it, God was powerfully present and advocating for me in the heavenly realms with the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ who knew and didn't know what I was going through who were covering me in protection. We may not be able to see the cracks in the sidewalk, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. You might not know how and where, but God is moving and he is mighty and powerful and you are not alone. You might not be able to understand it, but your prayer could be saving someone's life right now. It saved mine. You may not be able to see it, but the hills are ablaze with chariots of fire for you and God is on your side. I pray that your eyes are opened and that you see and you know the real God who fights for you. Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. Um, and I just feel so grateful for how good you've been to me in my life and how good you are to other people, God. Um, and I know that this area is not something that we talk about a lot or that um, necessarily comes up a lot in our lives, Lord. Um, but I just want to ask for your protection over everyone here, God. Um, that we would pray for each other. Um, that even though we don't understand the mystery of prayer, Lord, that we would cover each other in protection, Lord. I ask for your truth in fighting the battle. Um, against the devil, against his lies, against anything that he is trying to influence us to do, Lord. I ask for us to run to you, to flee to you, um, and to rest safely in the good news that you win, that you are an authority, God, um, that there's no contest. Thank you, God, for being so awesome, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, 
growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.